You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Spellcheck. And today we're sitting down with a guest who you previously heard on our Listener Stories episode. He's a sign-loving reseller and in his in his downtime and a trained avian ecologist. Welcome to the show, Alex DiGiovanni of Eagle Eye Finds. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. We're excited. I um, We had talked about this on your little interview and I was like, man, we got to have you come back and do a full show. So thanks for humoring me on that. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and when we spoke last, you were getting ready to start like a market, like doing your markets again, because you had had a little bit of a break, right? Yep. Yep. And how have they gone? You've done a couple cents, right? Yeah, done a couple cents. They've uh, been going pretty good. Yeah. Um, um, I haven't, I don't do too much uh, in person, but um, moved to DC in the last year ago. And um, there's a lot more people here, so it's a, lot, a little bit more successful, I feel like. So I've started to delve into that a little bit more, and I'm going to continue to try that. It's been good so far. Yeah, and I feel like in that type of market, price-wise is a little better because you have such a mix of economy where people are moving to that area specifically to work in different branches of either the government or things like that. Where did you move from to... Where you're at now? I moved from Champaign, Illinois, which is like University of Illinois. Is there? It's middle of the state, um, so surrounded by cornfields. Uh, <laughs> now I'm in Arlington, Virginia, um, right across, or literally right across the river from uh, DC. So yeah, oh, nice. wow, much different in terms of amount of people and the kind of people that are here. So yeah, definitely. Do you find it harder to source? Do because you, you source in person and online, right? Yeah, I do. I do a little bit of both. Um, I don't know. I, I, no, I, I'm finding good stuff here still. Good. Yeah. I was kind of like that side of the country is like high on my list of going to just experience the shopping because there's so much more to choose from than where we live Definitely. in the West. Yeah. Just the older cities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you find, I mean, here it's like the same things over and over and over again. Right. It's very rare that I find a really great antique in the wild or even like a sign, mm-hmm. which it was funny after we spoke, the first estate sale we were at had a great sign. And then this next one has a great sign. <laughs> and I was like, Alex, did you send a sign mojo? There you go. So we're finding them now. <laughs> um, Cause I, we had a guest on that made me appreciate signage just a little bit more, which was Ruth Rosen. Yeah. Yeah. I was- and now it's like everywhere. It's like that, um, Bader Meinhof, where you see it, mm-hmm. like you're not aware of it before, and now you're aware of it all the time. I don't know the words you're saying. Bader Meinhof is like, you know, the slug bug game? Yeah. Where you like punch somebody if you see a slug bug. Yeah, and my you see kids them all the do time. that to me. That's the Bader Meinhof syndrome is learning something and then seeing it over and over and over oh. again where you were never aware of it before. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot with uh, this show in particular. Yes. And I thought it was interesting when I was reading through your questionnaire that you started reselling, if I'm reading this correctly, at 14 yep. and then collecting at 21. That's a bit unusual and a little flip-flop. Yeah. 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 Please tell me how and why. So when I was in like high school, I don't know. I've always had like that entrepreneurial type sense for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know why or where it come, came from. Nobody in my family is like that. 
Uh, <laughs> Same. So yeah, I started to okay. This is this is going to be really weird, but um, okay. when I used to live you in like the suburbs of Chicago, which was relatively, um, I guess, affluent or better off. Um, we yeah. per- my mom's a teacher and my family's a te- our teachers, so like we weren't, but people around us were. <laughs> And they used to, I used to realize that they threw out really nice stuff. So I would go in in high school, I would go on like garbage night, go drive down the streets, put it all, all the good stuff in my truck or my car, Mm -hmm. uh, go to a flea market and sell it. That's genius. If it was nice, I would just sell it right away. Or if it was needed some fixing up, I would fix it up and then go sell it. Um, And then after doing that a little while, I decided like, why am I selling all this stuff that's kind of like crap and like plastic and stuff? Why don't I sell cool stuff like vintage? So I mm-hmm. that a little bit, started by go to like estate sales and garage sales, looking for that specifically. And then that just became a whole thing and started doing that throughout college and kind of, I didn't pay my way through college, but it definitely helped uh, do like some of the fun stuff for, for college. So. Yeah. Cool. That's incredible. Was, did you grow up in like, was collecting a thing in your family, like vintage and antiques no, or was that not, not something? No. I'm the oddball, I guess. <laughs> That's all right. I, I am also that person minus my grandma. But I just, I find that so interesting that you were like, here's this opportunity being handed to me. Let's make it work. Yeah. yeah. That's, I love that, that you're just like leaning off the well, I've always trash hounded. I've always, like, <laughs> yeah. if I see something on the side of the road that is not trash, right? Oh, like, no. Or even like the Goodwill dumpsters at our mm-hmm. Goodwill are behind and there's yep. a road. Mm-hmm. And I swing by multiple times a week to see mm-hmm. for some reason what they've decided to throw away. I feel like half the time the stuff they throw out is really good. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. And for me too, it's like now, well, I've always been kind of uh, environmentally inclined and friendly and everything mm-hmm. so for me like taking some out of trash or even vintage yeah something you're either taking out of the landfill or mm-hmm. not getting the resources to use to make the new things that you can still enjoy and just give another life you know yeah exactly and that's kind of i grew up that way you know we grew up pretty poor and my mom's a teacher too but she didn't start teaching until i was 16 and it was the same thing like we were always thrifting for things and like when i was a kid when you went to the dump you could still like salvage things right like (laughs) and so it was kind of like this fun treasure hunt to be like oh what can we bring home today and it takes a long time before you realize it was a necessity right to Mm -hmm. buy things secondhand and we kind of are the same way with our personal lives as well as our collecting lives is secondhand first even like in my gardening in my backyard I don't use any type of pesticides whether they're quote-unquote organic or not organic like because that's just a play on words. Like if you use anything harmful, it's going to affect literally everything. Yep. And that was, and that's something with where we live too in Idaho. And I have a kid that's in the backyard. Like I'm not going to do any of those things. Um, But I find it interesting that like that started at just like a little nugget for you and then turned into more of what you do in your everyday life now. Yeah. Of continuing that pursuit. Cause you, okay. So explain your job to me and your, like training, right. I guess, within the bird world. <laughs> so I have a background in uh, avian ecology. Um, I did my I did my master's in studying birds, um, and so that's really where my passion lies, and just helping the environment and everything. Um, I recently got a new job, 
Now I, I'm a sustainability consultant. So I work for a company in DC here. Actually, they're all over the place. There's mm-hmm. across the, the nation, but um, essentially we work for um, big companies that you would heard, you would know uh, mm-hmm. and helping just them become more sustainable um, mm-hmm. and just have better practices surrounding taking environmental stewardship and all that good stuff. That's so cool. I That's love so that. Cool. I love that you have a master's degree about tiny dinosaurs. <laughs> yep. I really like birds. <laughs> yeah. I um I think that's so rad. And especially that, I mean, that's a fairly new thing that the corporate world is thinking about, right? About mm-hmm. the detriment that the uh, large companies do to our world, right. especially right. ecosystems. And because somebody was telling me the other day about skyscrapers specifically, because last week I had a bird that flew into my very dirty window. I'm not entirely sure what she was thinking. And uh, I had to explain to my son, like, what happens with that. And my friend goes, do you know that there's like certain jobs with skyscrapers to make it that birds don't fly into them? Mm -hmm. I was like, what? What do they do? They put something over the windows specifically. So it's not as like translucent to a bird. Oh, it's visible to their eyes. You can get stuff to put on your windows too. There's like, they sell (gasps) stickers that uh, they're usually shaped like birds, but they're clear and they they show in the UV because birds can see in the UV. So for you, you birds can see in the UV. What? (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. They're just clear, but for the birds, they can see it. And then they realize there's a window there and they don't run into it. I'm going to have to do that. I'm so excited. (laughs) That's cool. I had no idea they could see in the UV. Yeah. What? All birds? Uh, A vast majority of them. Wow. Okay. I have chickens. Can my chickens see UV? Um, (laughs) Can or not. I don't chickens can see your soul though. (laughs) Yeah, they can. (laughs) Um, did this love for birds? Have you always had that or did that come when you were like picking a major? Um, I've always been kind of like into the nature and wildlife and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. I just kind of, I picked birds, uh, when I was going to college, just, I don't, I, there was just, they just became a thing for me and I don't really know why there's, I don't really have a background on why there, but going forward, I like them because they're like that one group of animals that like you can see everywhere like mm-hmm. look out my window here in dc and see a bird. Mm-hmm. you can just walk outside and see a bird you won't always see mammals or reptiles or amphibians or whatever yeah. those you have to look for but you can always look up and see a bird so they're very accessible and it's they're on oh, every continent mm-hmm. right and it's really cool to get people yeah. in jazzed about like in the environment and stuff and you can say like hey look there's a bird right there um mm-hmm. talk about it and get you involved yeah. I uh, learned to love birds from my grandparents. It was one of their collections. They had bird figurines of various types, glass, ceramic, and porcelain. And there was always bird feeders in the backyard. And like as a kid, I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and then when I was older and I would go sit with my grandpa and have coffee, he would tell me about all the birds. And so I actually have a bird tattoo that's my grandma's favorite bird. Don't ask me the name of it because I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, but it was one of their favorite things to do was sit on their patio and watch the birds. And my grandpa could do bird calls. And Ooh. and where we live in Idaho, there's a vast you know, like array of birds you can see in any part of Idaho and they change even just mile to mile of what you're seeing. And we have a lot of bird refuges here, like wetlands and marshlands and all that stuff. And it's, I mean, because it's still relatively wild and not urban here. Yeah, there's enough rural areas in Idaho pretty much throughout the entire state that 
the wildlife still is pretty comfortable mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. um, urban areas. Yeah, like if you're fishing and you come across some barn swallows, you'll know before you won't be able to fish there. They'll chase you out of your spot, especially <laughs> under the bridge. They don't they don't want anything to do with you. And I promise this makes sense with because I think like this is a natural trajectory to go to signage mm-hmm. of what you eventually landed on as being your sole kind of brand, right? Was signs. Do you remember the first sign you picked up? First sign I picked up. Um, yes, it was. I don't remember if that was. It was uh, an old Skelly uh, gas uh, and oil sign. Oh, cool. Um, it was like, in, like a diamond shape. It was really big. Barely fit in my car. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember if I went there specifically for that. It was a Craigslist ad that turned out to have that. I, I bought a bunch of stuff, ended up buying a bunch of stuff from them. So I, but I don't remember what was the thing that was advertised for me to go actually go there. Um, but mm-hmm, been there. that was my, my, my first sign that I bought. Yep. That's, and did you sell it or oh, did you keep yeah, it? Yeah, I sold it pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I, I'm not that much into the gas and oil, so I don't do too much gas and oil. So that's mm-hmm. the stuff that's worth a lot. So I'll sell yeah. that and buy something else I like or buy other cool stuff instead. Yeah, which was that was an interesting thing when I figured that out, like gas and oil signs. I went to a woman's house recently and they have, I mean, their house is like an antique store. It's filled with collections. But one of their collections is classic cars and the all of the things that go with classic cars. And she has a milk glass gas pump topper. Oh, that's so cool. And I was like, ah, of course they made them out of milk glass. They didn't have. But I, that whole world to me is very foreign of gas and oil and that type of ephemera that goes with it. Mm-hmm. What, and I know we mentioned it on your mini uh, episode, but what types of signs make it into your collection? Like, what's your threshold? What do you like to bring home? Um, they either have to have cool graphics or cool font and lettering typeface. Uh, mm-hmm. Or I, I, most of my signs that I keep have birds on them. So, perfect. Yeah. Do you stick mostly with metal and porcelain signs or do you go into like the hand painted glass sign? Um, I don't, I try to stick away from glass because I'm afraid I'm going to break it and I don't want to break, <laughs> I, I don't want to break a piece of history. So if mm-hmm. possible, unless it's really cool, and I know I have a spot for it. I'm going to stay away from glass, but um, I have porcelains. I have tins. Um, I have some hand painted wood ones. I just actually just bought one yesterday. Um, oh, cool. Uh, it's about, all the different types I think I have. Yeah. Yeah. So any, is that, as long as it looks cool, I'll hang it up. I love that. Is that kind of your only collection or do you have things that you like to get outside of science? Uh, my main, actually my signs I'll keep every once in a while. My main collection is license plates. So I, I collect old, really old porcelain license plates. Uh, porcelain. Like, yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, Seems like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Especially back in like the early 1900s when they had really bumpy cars that would get banged up all the time. They were made of porcelain. Yep. yep. I've I had no not all of them. Not there was only about like 20ish states that uh had porcelain license plates. Was but, there a reason? Yeah, why? Like that only 20 states. I will have to look oh, up for the curio Because mm-hmm. all this up to, well, when they first started, all the different states had different like rules about like how you, how to make your license plate um, mm-hmm. if pre uh, pre the rules, you could pretty much mm-hmm. up however however you want. So there's like pre-state issued license plates that are made of like wood, 
and leather and leather and you just got your number and then it was on you to go have a placard made with on there so yeah so some are handmade by the person that that had the car or they some like would go to like the hardware store and have them make it for you but yeah that's so cool so there's those and then once that became like they cars were a big enough thing where they like the state had to actually issue them for real some states decided to make them out of porcelain um instead of just tin which is bougie yeah. Well, back like in the day, pre, they, they felt like it was not that big of a deal. So they're like, yeah, let's do porcelain. It's probably um, <laughs> going to work out better for us. So. But, well, it was probably cheaper than tin. Yeah. Yeah. Like to pour a mold into that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's so interesting to me how I love when things start as like, well, I guess we're doing this. And then the government's like, you know, there's <laughs> money to be made in <laughs> yeah. this driver's license and yep. stuff business let's get it going and of course there's the famed idaho license plate with the potato on it which True. was one of the original ones and now we still have one with a potato on it but mm-hmm. it's a luscious looking fluffy baked potato with butter pads <laughs> yeah. and it makes me uncomfortable sometimes when i see it because i'm like it just looks too realistic like let's get a little more cartoony with that potato. It, i i don't i don't know i don't like the potato on everything because i mean <laughs> People literally know nothing about Idaho except potatoes. Let's reinforce that stereotype a little more. And butter. (laughs) Yeah. But we also have like, of course, which I don't know if this is a state to state thing, but we have a lot of like national park Mm -hmm. based license plate signs. Well, we have the bird license plate. Oh, yes. The the blue jay. Mm -hmm. It's not a blue jay. What is it? It's not a blue jay. Bluebird? Mountain bluebird? I don't know. I don't know. Yes. Yes. It's a mountain bluebird. Sorry, my bad. (laughs) I'll pay attention to it. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a mountain bluebird. Um, with so what makes it that a license plate stays in your collection rather than being resold? Do you have a list of ones you like to um, find? So my goal is to collect all the passenger porcelains. So okay, all the porcelains from states that issued them for passenger mm-hmm. cars because they had, but they would issue them differently for like trucks or like commercial vehicles and stuff like that. So like, oh. some even states even had like visitor. Uh, license plates so like you had to get a license plate that you were going to come um but i only collect passenger car porcelains um they have to be in really good condition i don't like it if because i'm going to hang them on the wall so i don't want them to be Mm -hmm. dinged up and everything um so i'm trying to get one per state per year that they issue them so there's i don't know about 20 states that issued them different number per state um some are a lot harder than others to find um but yeah, so those, um, I also collect the plates I have. There's some that are, some states had um, cities that issued them license mm-hmm. just for the city too. So I have a few um, Alexandra, Louisiana uh, porcelain plates because they say Alex on them and my name's Alex. So yeah. I, what, yeah. <laughs> find a, find a, an antique with your name on it. That's for real. So I have those. You have to. And then uh, I, I have one national park porcelain license plate um that i have right now it's uh barely wall quality but it's on there it's the only one i have so it's it's on the wall for now um but yeah well and i'm sure that the the porcelain plates fall victim to crazing right an age of yeah just, if you do, do they- yeah if you i mean they sometimes they fade um if you hit if you like nick them and all the, por- the porcelain comes off and there's just metal underneath um then they mm-hmm. and then stuff so yeah, as long as they, I mean, they they la- do last pretty well. Actually, they're they last better than some of the tins that were painted um, because they're kind of just encased and, and 
So right. as long as they didn't get oh, yeah. and knocked with the rock or whatever, when you're driving they're they like hold up really well. Um, mm. But yeah, so it's hit or miss in terms of whether you find a good one or it's all ready. Yeah, that's so interesting. I it's every time on the show, I'm like, I would have never thought to look for yeah things like that. And then I wonder how many times I've walked past something right like that in an antique store. Did Idaho do that? I wonder. Idaho, do you know? Not the- make porcelains, no. That's not surprising. Yeah, no. the roads are real rough here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> still, uh, still, yeah. <laughs> Also, I think it was just real a horse and buggy heavy for a really long time before anybody had cars here. Yeah, I think my so my mom grew up here mm-hmm. and people definitely rode their horse to the store when, yeah, when she was. We had a mailman that would <laughs> ride his horse wow. after he delivered in the city. Like, yeah. And everybody knew who he was. Yeah. Like if you'd see him, you'd be like, oh, there he is. <laughs> you just wave and then he Everybody waves at everybody. Yeah, it's a, a Idaho farmer wave. It's just this yeah. one palm up. Oh, that, they do that in Illinois just too. This. Yep, yep. Oh, you get it. You <laughs> pass somebody in the rural <laughs> road, you just do the two fingers up. For any, mm-hmm. Doesn't road. matter yeah. who it yeah. is. Yeah, if you make eye contact, you're obligated yeah. to wave and do a little nod yeah. Yeah. of acknowledgement. When my husband moved here from California, he was like, why the fuck are people just waving at me all the yes. time? It was very weird. <laughs> like, was like, nobody does that where I'm from in like the Chicago suburbs. I felt it was like, because I had to do a lot of bird surveys in the farmlands and everything. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, people are just waving at me. I'm like, why are people waving? I'll wave back. I'll be nice. But it's just weird. Shame. It's mostly yeah. just like, oh God, did I ruin that person's day right. by not waving? Right. I did not grow up here. And so when I did finally move here, it just really freaked me out. The waving. The waving. Mm-hmm. And also everyone will just like, no matter where you are, you're standing in a line or just like getting coffee or whatever. Hi, how's your day? How are you doing? <laughs> Dude, I don't know you. Yeah, it's a very Midwest type. Uh, where my mom's from, where I'm from in this small town, if you're in your front yard for longer than like five minutes, somebody's going to come over and talk to you. Yeah, for three hours. <laughs> yeah. Just how the hell are you? <laughs> What's going on with you today? Um. So when you got into the reselling of signage, you specifically mentioned in your little mini episode that you don't take on signs that require a lot of work anymore. Like you factor that in to your reselling part of it. So I want to know a little bit more about like, what is Alex's checklist for a sign before it goes to your site? Um, signs, I, I really only buy if they, I, I guess, I'm just going to sell out right. Like if, if, mm-hmm. if my intent is to sell it, I'll only buy it if it, I'm going to, I'm not going to do anything to it, doctor it up or anything. Signs are usually pretty good in the sense of like, you don't have to do that. The other stuff yeah. is like all the other, like I don't just sell signs. They sell a lot of mm-hmm. home decor, wall decor, stuff that sits on a shelf, mid-century, just everything. Anything that looks cool, yeah. mm-hmm. I'll sell it. Um, or at least I'll hold on to it and decor, decorate my own apartment with it until it, mm-hmm. it sells. Um, mm-hmm. And so for that kind of stuff, it's like, I don't really want to spend the time to fix it up uh, when I could be either finding other things or selling other things, listing other things for sale. So I really mm-hmm. try to filter my, uh, my buying habits to like, is this ready to go right now? Or do I have to do something with it? Um, mm-hmm. I don't really have too much of a checklist. I just, I just go through my head and like, okay, do I have to do something with this or is it going to sit here until I fix it or clean it or, mm-hmm. or, um, just sift through all the box of full of stuff of junk or yeah. it, like ready to take a picture right away and, uh, ready to go. 
So I don't really have too much of a list. It's just like, is it, is it a yes? It's a yes or no question. Is it ready to go? Yeah. If it's not a no, or I mean, if it's not a yes, then it's a no and I'm going to move on. Yeah. That makes it a lot easier and smart. I wish I would have done that from the beginning. In the beginning, you get kind of caught in this trap of seeing something vintage or old and you're like, oh, I got to get that. And then Mm -hmm. you realize how common it is and how shitty the one you bought is. (laughs) Yes. And you're like, oh, whoops, that didn't work out (laughs) well for me. Yep. Yeah. And that's um, that it's interesting being on the estate sales side of things now being the one that's facilitating and the things that go through a home. And we've had a couple of people that have come on and helped that have never estate sailed. They've never, ever been to an estate sale. And one of them was my best friend. And we were standing in the basement of the Eleanor house. And there was just this box, right? An empty box. And she goes to throw it in the trash. And I said, hold, hold on a minute. What is that? And she like holds it up. And she's like, it's just a box. I'm just gonna throw it away. I said, no, no. I said, I know it seems ridiculous, but don't throw that box away. <laughs> She's like, are you serious? And Melissa goes, yeah, don't don't throw that box away. And my little brother, who's 17, never, like, he got the, the, the short side of collecting. Like, he's the baby, never did antique stores, garage sales, like, none of that, right? So he's very green. He's helping us work. And in the beginning, he was like, oh, he was like, I was like, do not throw anything away. You have to pass it by me first before you throw something away. And this last week, he finally got it. And we were in the gun room of this house. And he found a piece of ephemera. It was like the manual for an old craftsman drill. And he looks at me and he goes, this is something somebody will buy, right? (laughs) I was like, you're right. You are right. And now he kind of watching that transition of like, when you go through somebody's belongings and like, I wouldn't keep it, but somebody else will go through and purchase it. I think that's a huge part of reselling is being able to acknowledge that you might not like it but Mm -hmm. somebody else is gonna love it Mm -hmm. well and i think too what alex you've done really well is like identifying your market and what your brand is and making it consistent instead of just finding everything that's cool you definitely have a vibe that goes with everything that you do because your website's beautiful yeah and you have a great eye for picking and as well as like photographing and giving the summary of what the item is, is tremendous. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. I do take a lot of time to do some of that stuff. So it's always good. It shows. It's well received. (laughs) It looks like, I remember the first time I saw your website, that first time we were speaking and I was like, is this like an enterprise? Like this looks so professional and well done. And like, I've seen websites of companies that are large that don't even hold a flame to your site Mm because it's just... It, it's very like what do you feel like your brand is and i want to see if i'm right like who do you feel like your buyers are um i don't know it depends on the item really like mm. i saw a lot of felt pennants and so i feel like mm-hmm. you could both get the person that was that traveled there in the 1960s to on vacation or you can get the like uh millennial or gen x or that or mm-hmm. gen z or that it's like oh that's cool i want that little a bohemian vibe in my apartment. So I'm going to get that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a yeah. big, I do have a wide range of, of customers. I feel like that, like are looking for things for different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. What do you, what do you, what would you say? I would agree. Like, that's what I was thinking of with every, cause I was going through your website in my head thinking like the home decor side, the pennant side, this stuff. Like I see pennant being like, an interior designer designing a room for like a teenage boy or a home office or mm-hmm. gifts for somebody like a, you know, somebody that went to college there, or traveled there, or was from there. Cause that's, that's what I see that. And then your home decor stuff, because of how well it's shot and curated on your site, 
I see more of a high-end kind of clientele that's looking to curate their space specifically to an era rather than sourcing like we would do for our own spaces. Like that kind of high-priority person that's like, no, I need these specific mm-hmm. candlesticks or lamps or yeah, things like that. Like I see a, somebody that's maybe more of a minimalist that wants a, a specific item that tells a story rather than the maximalist side of things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I definitely try to... I only try to find cool stuff. So if I, I yeah, if I can't see myself decorating with it, I usually try to stay away from it unless I get like a carload of stuff. And then it's like, well, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say no to this. I'll just throw yeah. it there and, and see what happens. But uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, it's like if I can see myself or know people that would dec- decorate in that way or that sense or with that vibe, then I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll get this and put it out there for, for sale for somebody to find that'll give it a good home and, and, uh, get it to the next home in the future. So give it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, antique and vintage foster care. Yeah. That's what we call yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just going to hold on to this. I do the same thing now, especially with the show when I'm out and I don't buy as much as I used to. Um, I've kind of slowed that way down, but I do grab things specifically when I know somebody collects it. Mm-hmm. Like when I know, I know one person that would really appreciate this like sewing kit or scrapbook or different things like that. I feel like when you get heavy into collecting and reselling, it shifts your own personal view of your own items. Like Mm -hmm. you get a little bit more detailed and like well thought out about what you're bringing home. And it's fun to watch other people go on that same journey of collecting and like start with the most stuff that people find and then move to different things. You did that recently for me. You um, found a book like a, 1896. Mm-hmm. I like books. I'm a book person. So mm-hmm. not something she would collect, but she found it and brought mm-hmm. it home for me. It's a Longfellow mm-hmm. poem book. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Really amazing condition too. Yeah. Like it's incredible. Like it's never been opened. It look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The spine is completely intact. Mm-hmm. There's hardly any scuffing on it or mm-hmm. anything. It's great. Yeah. And the sale we're currently working on, the woman was an <clears throat> avid reader. And there we ran out of bookshelves upstairs and had to start putting books downstairs. And she has, she was an extensive sci-fi reader Mm -hmm. and has like hundreds of sci-fi paperbacks. Mm -hmm. Wow. And some of them are um, like definitely collectible Mm -hmm. for sure. It's so cool. I love seeing um, just the psyche behind different people's collections and what means the most to them. Like that's just always endlessly interesting to me to see what somebody feels is important enough to display yeah in their home it's very vulnerable showing people yeah, your, your collections stuff. yeah like this is a huge part of me please look at it with both your eyeballs and you had some interesting stuff on like your holy grail list that i i have to google it so i know what it looks like you have some like signs and license plates right that have birds specifically on them yep yep so those, those are my current collections is like the porcelain license plates. I also collect uh, Louisiana uh, license plates from like pre-1963. A lot of them have pelicans on them. So, oh, yep. So, um, yeah, it's like 1932 to 1939 had a pelican on them. And then there's a like, two-year break. And then 1942 to 63 all had pelicans on them. So I'm trying to get one from every year there in good condition. Um, wow. I, of course, the birds with the advertising or advertising signs with the birds on them. And then, mm-hmm. um, I, since I went to University of Illinois for both my master's and undergrad, um, I collect felt pennants from them. And so I have a wall with, 
I was also in the marching band in, at UVI. So I have my, That's awesome. I have my uh, a cape from our uniforms hung up with all, all the pendants in my collection and then a few license plates that were University of Illinois related. So what did you play? I play a sousaphone. Oh, I'm oh yeah. <laughs> what? Sousaphone. I don't know what that is. The marching team. Is that? That's real? A, big a sousaphone? <gasps> really? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love that so much. This is why I don't tell anybody anything before we sit down with a guest so that they get to have the full reaction I have when I read through things and find things about people. I love that. I played the trombone. I did not play it to high school, but... I played the flute. Oh. Yeah. Um, right around when uh, American Pie came out. Yeah, that was a real oh. popular. Mm-hmm. It was also a popular, like, uh, preppy girl yep. choice was the flute. I was... <laughs> I wanted to play ska. That's why I picked mm-hmm. the trombone. I was so far from preppy. I'd, I'd, yeah, that's y- why it's surprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to play this flute. Um, I love that you kept your cape from yeah. the marching band. Is it felt too with like... The- no, it's... Uh, I don't know. Wool? Not, no, not wool. I don't know what it is. Traditional marching yeah, band. or something, yeah. Some kind of fabric. Yeah. Commercial. So they gave them... So they, they kept... Capes from the old uniforms, and if you're in the band for all four years of college, you get one of the cape, the old capes. So it wasn't really my cape, but is a cape. oh cool, yeah, that's cool. I love that. Yeah, because when you said, it, I was like, that's an interesting thing because I, I was like, most of those stay with the university, right. and then yeah. you just get so they fit out the old uniforms and kept all the capes from them and give them give them for keepsakes to all the members that are that's cool. in there for all four years. Excellent. Nice. Um, that you're endlessly interesting, <laughs> Alex. This is <laughs> Susan from phone. dumpster diving to trash picking to <laughs> signs and marching band. I love it. Now I do have to ask, obviously, because of the bird thing. Do you have favorite birds? Like, do you have favorite birds that you like to observe? Or that's such a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I I have many different. I like. I, there's they're all good. They're all cool for different <laughs> reasons, and I don't really have a mm-hmm. favorite bird. That's it's. Do you have like a favorite genus? Or uh, no, not really. Uh, like, like favorite family. Pick a child. The warblers are all pretty <laughs> and, and and look really cool. Um, I like the corvids because they're all really smart and everything. Obviously, yeah, yeah. like blue jays, crows, and mm-hmm. ravens, and all those. Um, of course, it, who doesn't like owls? Those are cool. Mm-hmm. And raptors and stuff like that. Um, yes, I mean they're they're all cool for different reasons, you know. So that said, you can't own anything that was used and or had a on a bird so nests that means feathers that means anything um uh, for native species unless of course if you hunt it then i think it's okay um but yep same with you know like i remember somebody one of my friends walked up to me with like eagle feathers oh those that's really illegal (laughs) that was and she's like mess with no, she was walking. We were walking around like in the lava rocks or whatever, and she's got them in her hands. And I was like, "Bitch, put those back where you found them." <laughs> and she's like, "Wait, it's just feathers." I said, "No, put no. You do not want to deal. No, put it back. Leave it. Forget you found it." So I lived in Alaska for a while, and bald eagles up there are like squirrels yeah. here. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're all over the place. They constantly are getting into things. Mm-hmm. Such a nuisance. But I mean, can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not that I would want to, but it's yeah. just like they're everywhere. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those things, too, where most feathers of predatory birds like hawks, eagles, different things like that are owned by certain indigenous uh, tribes and peoples. 
So if you find like, I think it, where we live with the different mm-hmm. tribes that are around us, it's specifically like hawk feathers that oh. are owned, like the they have the treaties and rights to them to mm-hmm. use and to find and to harvest. Yeah. But we do not have that same right. So it's better to just leave them where you found them and let nature do its thing. Mm-hmm. Same with like Idaho. I remember when I was learning how to shoot for my grandfather, there was like, of course, magpies and songbirds and all types of things, however we're shooting. And I'd asked my grandpa a question. I was like, have you ever shot one of those? And he goes, no, you can't shoot those. And he like did this whole long talk about how different birds are protected and especially magpies because they're bullies. That's a federal offense, I think. What? Yeah. Any harassment or any sort mm-hmm. of doing anything that's bad for birds is illegal. If it's native. If, so if you, yeah. if you were doing it to like a pheasant that is from Asia, then you're fine. But, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Any literally any native bird is protected by the migratory bird. Yep. So like the Eurasian collared doves that are all over you the place. You can do whatever here. you want to those. Yeah, they're <laughs> trash, invasive. They're an invasive species. Yeah. yeah. I Yeah, but like, you know, like uh Like grandma's a felon? Yes. You know like blackbirds, like the huge swarms of blackbirds we get above fields? Same thing. Yeah. You can't do anything to uh, those. Maybe shit. those might be starlings and those are invasive, so you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Oh, good. Good to know. I'm glad we're doing uh, what birds can I shoot with a BB gun? Don't talk. be like torturing them or anything. No. Yeah. No, 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 no. And that's the other thing too is like, if you have a problem with a bird in your area, you need to call the local game warden or something like that to have somebody come out and remedy the issue yeah. outside of like pigeons and Eurasian doves and things like that. But yeah, songbirds, like anything like that is illegal to keep. Even if you, and in Idaho too, any like, game you see on the side of the road mm-hmm. even if it's been hit by a car oh yeah it you has have to, to leave stay. it you can't take it my uncle is a wildlife biologist is his phd in something is I- his is his mother the one that's being a felon no no that my that's my it's <laughs> my dad's brother the dutch one oh uh, makes sense um he had to have a special license to pick up roadkill yeah. mm-hmm. when he was like i think in idaho it's a fur trapper it's a fur permit because you're you can't to pick up roadkill. Well, you can't sell wild game meat because it's not regulated in Idaho. At least you uh-huh. cannot like you can keep things for your own private consumption and give it to people, oh, but you right, cannot right. harvest things because I mean, yeah. it's wild game. But in order to harvest uh, any furs, pelts, bones, anything like that, you have mm-hmm. to have a permit and a license in the state of Idaho. Which is why when I was researching the, the sellability of taxidermy yeah. for us was why I was concerned about the licensing aspect. But they've already been professionally mounted and all of that stuff. So we're outside of the scope of that. But yeah, it is definitely because, I mean, there's tons. Like there was, it's unfortunate. There's an area out in Shelley that is privately owned land, but everybody kind of goes out there. And it's where we learn to shoot. It's in the lava fields. And at one point there was a trapper whether they were legal or not, was dumping all of their carcasses out there. And it was awful. I remember we were shooting. And once you live somewhere that you smell a dead animal, it's something that never leaves you. Mm -hmm. And I walked around behind a huge desert-like cedar. And there was a five, which trigger warning, dead animal talk. There was a five foot by six foot pile of mink. A lot of mink. And then further down, it was beavers, coyotes, deer, their whole bodies without their fur. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, and Shelly, yeah, because there's a, and it's it's just that thing where people think if nobody's watching them and it's very private, right? They'll just they don't have to pay to dump. They don't have to follow any regulations. They're not worried. Like people will take their livestock out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, livestock, I guess, makes more sense to me. In this but the area. thing is, is 10 miles the other direction is a transfer station that takes animal remains. Oh, so that was definitely But illegal. you have to pay. Oh, very. It's illegal to dump because of aquifers. Oh, I mean, uh, the collection of like, if there's a place to dump the carcass, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, it's illegal to dump any type of animal carcass outside of a regulated area. I feel like I don't know anything about any of this. That's only because of who my grandfather was. Yeah. Like, because when I stumbled upon that, it was upsetting. Yeah. And then I went, I would go back every couple of years and I was like, well, I guess I'll go get some skulls oh. because they're there. But yeah, it's, um, it's the living in a rural place where it's kind of wild westy, but it's, uh, it's, and it's weird what rules people want to follow, what they don't want to follow. Yeah. I'm still thinking about the felony with oh yeah magpies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely. And I wanted to ask you specifically about like Victorian taxidermy and things like that. Like, would that ever be anything you would keep in your collection? Like, what are your thoughts on taxidermy? Um, taxidermy. I guess I don't really think about it. It's just it's kind of a shame that like they there's things that like that that were taxidermy back in the day. But mm-hmm. at this point, they already are. Oh, right. I don't know. Like, like of course, I would sure I would go to a museum. Like the Smithsonian has taxidermy stuff. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess my view on it is that like it should probably be in a museum and not necessarily in a private collection. I don't. Mm-hmm. I feel like if the especially bird wise because it's mm-hmm. because it is a law and everything probably should be in a museum instead of just in somebody's private collection because then people can actually learn from it. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh. But I, for yeah, other I species, I don't know. I don't know enough about other species to really have a, an opinion, I guess. Which, I mean, that's totally fine. In hunting, sure, that's fine. I mean, because mm-hmm. they it's usually subsistence hunting. So for the most part, mm-hmm. it's actually better for the environment to get it, your food that way anyway. Um, and yeah. you also fund research by hunting. A lot of research is funded by hunting. Um, so uh, that's... I guess I never connected that dot. Of course it is. Oh, yeah. Like, it, definitely bird-wise. A lot of research is funded by hunting taxes and, and uh, yeah. levies and stuff. Yeah. And here it's so commonplace, hunting, right? Like every home mm-hmm. has various amounts of big game taxidermy or like my pheasant, I'm sure, was mounted in all of every part of its life was here in Idaho because they're everywhere where we live. And I have the same kind of thing of I'm not seeking taxidermy to own taxidermy. It's always like a rescue mission. Yeah. Yeah. Of like, I came across this and something was going to happen to it. And, you know, where do we go from there? But I, yeah, I, it's a fine line. And I think here in Idaho, like the taxidermy mostly is that same thing. Like you were saying, like most people are hunting for their meat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a, it's a family thing to have your gigantic Very much. elk mm-hmm. mounted. Yeah. But yeah, and Victorian taxidermy isn't necessarily safe to own in your personal home because of lead, lead and arsenic. Yeah. Um, thanks for entertaining my uh, bird questions. Because yeah. yeah, anytime. Yeah, it's infinitely interesting. We had a hummingbird nest on our internet wire two years ago, 
And she had her babies, like two little chicks. And it was, I mean, the nest is so tiny, right? Mm -hmm. And she came back the following year, but I had already cleaned the, like they used, she used primarily the cobwebs that were no longer dangerous from around our windows. And she would fly into the corner of the window and spin her beak to get like a cotton swab. And then she'd make her nest. Sweet baby angel. And she came back the next year and I had just cleaned the windows. And we had this like interaction where she was like, my house. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't think you'd come back. And she comes back every year. So she must build her nest somewhere else on our property. Yeah. But we see her every year. It's like she comes and says hello. And then I have robin nests all over like different parts of my house. Every year there's a new one. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And my parents have so many hummingbirds at their house that it sounds like a swarm of bees. Oh. Oh, yeah. They have lots. But they live in the mountains. Yes. Um, One of our friends has, they're building a property out in Swan Valley and they have a mated pair of blue herons that are on their pond every year. Oh. They're so sweet. (laughs) They're so sweet. Do they have names? I don't know. She hasn't named them. (laughs) But she saw the heron decoy at this house and she was like. I need that decoy. <laughs> when my parents moved into their house, there was a peacock and a peahen that just lived on the property that they named Albert and Victoria. Oh my God. I love them. I love them. <laughs> All right, Alex, before we get into today's estate sale walkthrough, mm-hmm. where can our listeners find you both online and in person if you have any markets coming up? Yeah. So um, I am at Eagles I Finds with an S, Eagles I Finds mm-hmm. uh, on Instagram. I also, my website is eaglesifinds.com. Um, and what else I'm doing a bunch of different, starting to get into a bunch of different local selling events and stuff around here in the DC area. So, um, just, uh, follow my Instagram to find out where, where and when I am, I'm going to be, uh, I know if there's a strong likelihood that I'm going to be at the little DuPont flea market, um, in sometime in September. So be be on the lookout for that. But uh, yeah, that's probably my next uh, in-person one at some point. And I always miss the S. I apologize for oh, that. My brain just cancels it out. Oh, Eagle's okay. eye finds. <laughs> All right. So, of course, we had to go poke around in a like swap meet setting because I want to go to a swap meet so bad. Especially on the East Coast. Absolutely. If you're new to the show, every week on the Mothball Prophecies, we do an imaginary estate sale walkthrough. All of the items in the walkthrough are based around our guests' favorite things, collections, things they're lusting after. And the great thing about it is you have the money, you have the space, it's in perfect condition, and it's what you've been after. The catch is you can only pick one of the items listed in each scenario. Mm -hmm. Are we ready? It's going to be painful. Just a little bit. All right. So, of course, I said we're talking, we're walking around that swap meet, and we're hoping to find the two things that mean the most, killer deals for a good price on great things. Mm-hmm. All right. And since Spelch is with us, we stop immediately at a booth filled with books. <laughs> yep. Do you choose the Antique Decorative Birds book of American Ornithology? And it's the Wilson Complete Volume 1 from 1878. It's a beautiful book. Or the Antique Bird Lore books. And it's an ornithology magazine from 1917. And it's the full year. There's six issues. Alex, we'll go with you first. Um, probably the Audubon because there's lots of cool prints in there. Um, mm-hmm. Can't go wrong with old Audubon stuff. Mm-mm. I would probably choose that too because I'm a sucker for book plates. Yeah, I think I think I'm going that way as well. All right, good, 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 good first picks. 
All right. Up next, we have a book, uh, a booth with a variety of trinkets, right? And there is, tucked behind some other things, a 1935 pharmacy thermometer with a parrot and an ad for Tums. And this one is actually from Kuna, Idaho. It's a real thing. I found it this morning. <laughs> what? And it's that beautiful kind of faded parrot in flight with the thermometer running down the middle. The next is a small songbird standing next to a rounded sign, and it's an advertising figurine meant to sit on top of a desk. Alex, which one are you choosing? Um, probably this, the thermometer, because I can hang it on a wall. I feel like <laughs> statues are hard to display. I guess, although you said that was small, right? So yeah. On a shelf. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. That, that one's hard. Probably... Well, I might, have to go, I might have to go with the little shelf sitter thing. I don't do too much mm-hmm. with parrots. I try to keep it to be wild birds. So, Ooh, um, okay. Yeah. So I might go with the, the little advertising shelf piece. That's a good choice. It's beautiful. I definitely want the thermometer because um, mercury is dangerous, and I want yes. the dangerous thing. There you go. <laughs> um, I'm in the same boat as you, Alex, as the choices of, like, I, like, I, love, I love a gallery wall. But I also need some shelf sitters. And this advertising figurine is lovely. It's hand-painted on the front really beautifully. But the Idaho thing trumps the figurine because it's from the 30s. And that would have been a very small town at the time. So mm-hmm. I'm going with the, the parrot in flight. Even though a parrot wouldn't be my first choice either. All right. The next one is a fantasy question. And it involves things living and things not living. Ooh. Okay. And this is, this was specifically for you. I've never had to write a question like this. If you could study any of these birds in real life, whether they are alive or dead, which one would you choose? Would you choose the dodo, the Vogelkopf superb bird of paradise, or the cockapo? Is it cockapoo? Cockapo? Uh, it's cockapo. Hmm. cockapo. Oh. I did not say the scientific names. I'm not doing that to myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I don't know very many scientific names because they're all standard. All the names are standardized in the U.S., so I don't have to oh, learn too many. Nice. Uh, Thank God. I well, I know like genus and stuff, but not down to species all the time. Unless I study, yeah. then I, I know the ones I study. But um, I don't know. I probably pick the dodo. They're so cool and, and different, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So much to go and research about them. Yeah, I I would go for the dodo because the accounts of people interacting with them, they were like big dumb dogs <laughs> i just want one to as a pet <laughs> um i'm gonna go with the kakapo because they look like big dumb dogs like they just look like curious little creatures that like my favorite video is that photographer shooting another bird and that kakapo just gets on top of his head and it's like what are you doing yeah <laughs> what's going on over here and they look like they would like, they have like a texture that looks like a sloth kind of. They just seem very interesting. Like what? it was like the leftover bits of a bird. And they were like, here, make that bird. Yeah, those guys are so yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm glad that wasn't too hard. But the dodo is rad. Like, I, yeah, it's a dodo. I know. It's between the dodo and the kakapo. I am going to have to look up that into the middle one. Oh, it's cool. Vogel cop. Mm-hmm. What is that? Is that a. Alex, I'll let you. Yes, please, you sir. Yeah, the bird of paradise, right? So they're all, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be really uh, pretty looking. Um, they're going to be very powerful. Yeah. Um, they usually have some sort of um, mating ritual that's pretty interesting. 
all like dancing mm-hmm. and building nests yeah. and finding pebbles mm-hmm. and things. Yeah. yeah. And this one, this one specifically is like black with like this lightning blue color that they like fluff oh. out in a fan for their mating ritual. Like a like fan to, butt. Yeah. And then the female is just brown, unfortunately. Okay. So before you leave, <laughs> what is it? Why? Why are females always so um, plain? Uh-huh. Like it's a, like across most birds, at least that I'm aware of, and I'm not some expert, but I mean, that's such a common thing for the female to be plain. Mm-hmm. There could be several reasons for this. Um, the first is that usually the females are the ones that take care of the offspring and like sit on the nest and everything. Although that's not, I mean, sometimes they do switch off and they both mm-hmm. contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's better for the female to be more camouflaged so that no, nothing sees her while she's sitting on the nest and nobody finds yeah. out where the nest is to eat the babies instead. Um, also, it takes a lot of energy to look pretty, right? Um, and so it's not always the best interest to actually like produce i mean like really red feathers or really colorful feathers because that takes a lot of energy that Mm. and somewhere else or on something else right Um, you're blowing my mind right now (laughs) both of us i'm like (laughs) of course that's the reason why because they have to produce the next generation what everything in biology is like a cost trade-off so yeah 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 that's so cool that's rad thanks for that last little tidbit before we leave uh, thanks for entertaining all of my questions today, specifically about birds and signs. It, this was it just uh, mind melting in so yeah. many different avenues that I was not expecting. Like I, I learned mean, so much today. <laughs> thank you so much for that. And I hope that everybody checks out your website and your Instagram and all Definitely. the things that you do because it is really beautiful. The prices are great. The sourcing is excellent. And you heard it here first. It's in great condition or we ain't selling it. Yep. Yep. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, it's always a pleasure. You're darling. And I appreciate your love of our friendly birds. I love birds. Yeah. Bird. <laughs> to hear even more about the things we talk about today with Alex, stick around for this week's Curio Order. Man, it feels good to be back in the office. Yes. The pod office. Pod office. I am so glad jazz that alex agreed alex agreed to sit down with us yeah he was so nice info dump on all things Mm -hmm. um which i say it every time but um it's always so interesting to learn more about a common object i knew nothing about what we talked about today which was exciting to watch your reaction yeah I had no idea what was going on. No. And when I spoke with him previously, you know, I spoke about the Idaho plate and we talked briefly about license plates and things Mm -hmm. like that. And now the last couple of sales, you know, we've had these first two, Mm -hmm. there's been, of course, license plates in each one. And I'm like, see them on our initial walkthrough. And I'm like, are you? Yeah. Well, that thing you said where you see things that you didn't see before. Bader-Meinhof. Yeah. That is Bader-Meinhof. Let's read the exact definition of a Bader-Meinhof. Yeah. That's also something. All right. Pause. Okay, this is coming, obviously, from Wikipedia. Mm. So there's two names for it. There's the frequency illusion. Oh. That's also known as the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon Mm -hmm. or frequency bias. Mm -hmm. It's a cognitive bias in which after noticing something for the first time, there is a tendency to notice it more often, leading someone to believe that it is an increased frequency of occurrence. It occurs when increased awareness of something creates the illusion that it is appearing more often. Yeah. So when you see it, then 
There it is. And this was derived from a particular instance of frequency illusion in, in which the Bader-Meinhof group was mentioned. In this instance, it was noticed by a man named Terry Mullen, who in 1994 wrote a letter to a newspaper column in which he mentioned that he had first heard of the Bader-Meinhof group. And shortly thereafter, he just came across the term from another source. Mm-hmm. After the story was published, various readers submitted letters detailing their own experience in similar events, and the name Bader-Meinhof phenomenon was coined as a result. The frequency illusion term was coined in 2005 by Arnold Zawicki. He's a professor of linguistics at Stanford and Ohio University. He considered this illusion a process involving two cognitive biases, select attention bias, noticing things that are important to us and disregarding the rest, followed by confirmation bias, so looking for things that support our hypothesis while disregarding potential counter evidence. I have a really specific... um Example of this in my own life. Mm. My the car that I drove before my current car was a, like a kind of a blue green Buick Lesabre, mm-hmm. and I saw them everywhere, constantly. Oh. And now that I uh, the car I drive now is a silver Kia Soul, mm-hmm. I see them all the time. Mm-hmm. Same with mine. I see my car all the time. Also, that's like the slug bug reference and yeah, different things like that. Or like when we learn about an item on the show, and then previously you see unaware it. of, mm-hmm. you know, whether cognitively or on purpose, pops up everywhere. It's one of my favorite things in terms to throw around. Yeah. Um, and it's helpful, right? Especially with what we're doing now with the estate sale company. Oh, definitely. Being aware of more things when we go through a house mm-hmm. and things that I'm sure we're still looking over because we haven't been made aware of their significance at uh, this point. Yeah. Or the collector that would teach us about them. I feel like I'm probably doing that with everything. That's okay. My little brother um, is working for us on this one. And he we kept showing him things. He goes, you guys keep showing me things like I know what it is. And I said, no, I'm showing you things because they're rad. Two and three, you need to know what you're looking for if yep. you're going to work for me. You need to know why it's important or why we're losing our mind about it. Mm-hmm. And like this house has like the largest collection we've come across yet of uh, the Corel Spring Blossom. Oh, dude, yeah, like Whoa. napkin rings, placemats, plates. Bowls, it's it's Pyrex. I feel like it is the complete mm-hmm. set of everything you could get with that pattern. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting. I was like, we just, anyway, we kept finding places all over. Also, this house has, uh, it's funny. It has a lot of reloading things and ammunition, yeah. right? He was an outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. So we had to find something in one of the rooms that we now call the bullet bucket. And it's a little mm-hmm. pink, like floral bucket that we take from room to room and hang on the door for loose change and loose ammunition. Yeah. Cause it was everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> I'm sure there's still some somewhere. Yeah. And the floorboards. Yeah. And it, I mean, kitchen junk drawer. Yeah. Bedroom. There's drawers. Pants pockets. There were bullets in every single room. Mm-hmm. And not like full rounds. There were a lot of it was just the, the bullet, Brass. wasn't it? Yeah. Brass or the yeah, the tip for the bullet. Like and it's very common. My grandpa did the same thing. He mm-hmm. would go shooting and have rounds in his pocket, live yeah. ammunition with his change, get home at the end of the day and put it in the change yeah. jar. Or it falls in the couch or just whatever. Oh, we should check the couch. <laughs> we should check that out. Um, the other interesting thing we talked about today with Alex was specifically porcelain license plates. Yeah, which what? Which when he first said porcelain, I was thinking like a whole ass like piece of porcelain, not yeah, enamel. That um, is exactly what I thought. I was yeah. thinking a pretty teacup. And then my brain was like, no, dude, that doesn't make any sense. So I just wanted to read some of the interesting high points of porcelain plates. And this comes from porcelainplates.net specifically. So they started making porcelain license plates and tagging cars specifically because of accidents and injury. 
Um, so the motoring elite. So obviously cars were for the wealthy, right? Oh, yeah. And how you tagged your car was for the wealthy. It was a luxury item, mm-hmm. right? And it was not like there was no infrastructure t- to support cars. Yeah. Like it was dirt roads, shitty roads with wagon wheel ruts. Like it was, there was nothing to do that, right? There and was no ca- industry for that yet. Cars were not built around the roads that were available at the time. No. Either. There was also, there wasn't like mechanics. <laughs> everywhere yep, that right that used to not be a job and everybody if you lived in a town and you had a car everybody knew what car you had right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the motoring elite quickly developed a reputation nationwide for recklessness and disregard for the safety of others mm-hmm. and so they were hitting people running people Jeez. over horses were being spooked and riders were thrown off pedestrians run down and the drivers got away with it because there was no way to identify the vehicle oh uh-huh so the idea of placing license plates on cars grew from a mm-hmm. brewing like resentment towards automobilists, as they were known at the automobilists. time, mm-hmm. where cities and states realized, like I said, that they could get revenue. And then also they could regulate the speed of these vehicles, mm-hmm. the equipment they were required to carry, the roads they were and weren't allowed to use. And they were a way to be like, okay, who has this licensed and tagged? Who does it belong to? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But owners were obviously not pleased with this. And there was a crusade against them and their devil wagons (laughs) as the press frequently labeled automobiles. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. And they felt like placing the number on a car was thought to be disfigurement and a lowbrow gesture. Oh, so middle class. Mm -hmm. How dare they? Mm. It looks like a common taxi. That's what one said. (laughs) However, as more and more automobiles filled the streets of America, it was clear that they were fighting a losing battle with vehicles, right? Because there was now we're getting rid of horses and wagons and more people are getting yeah. vehicles, right? And different types of transportation. Urbanization and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the numbers placed on cars were crude and like he said, sometimes written on the vehicle or leather, wood by the owner or somebody that made them, right? Metal, leather, mm-hmm. wood. And department stores began to offer house numbers and leather or metal pads for cars. Mm. So in the 1900s, we start to have cities that are starting to standardize the license plate industry and practices, right? I wonder, did it start specifically in cities and then went statewide? Yes. So, and it started in the Northeast. So in New England in 1903. Makes sense. Issued the first uh, porcelain license plate and vehicle registrants. And it was attractive, undated, designed to be used for the next five years. Um, and the porcelain manufacturing for signs and kitchenware had been around since the middle of the previous century. So the application of using that same thing on a metal plate wasn't a stretch of the imagination and was much easier to achieve because porcelain was already a dominating industry. It was readily oh. available and there was lots of skilled craftsmen where when you were making a metal license plate, yeah, that was very foreign. Yeah, they weren't, you know, there was no stamping like there Mm-mm. is now. And this is the, so the state and city issuance of license plates caught on from this and it continued to be the material of choice and it spread across the Northeast. In 1905, um, every state in New England by 1905 had begun issuing porcelain plates. And then cities started to jump on the bandwagon. The first was St. Louis in St. Louis County. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in 1904 and 1906. Then Philadelphia in 1906. And then Pennsylvania. So all the big cities. Mm -hmm. 1906, the state of Virginia issued an undated porcelain plate. West Virginia. So, I mean, the huge part of the country at the time. Yeah. Uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, Columbus, Ohio, Pittsburgh, and Warren, Ohio by 1908. 
and the state of Ohio had their own issue thing. Cause it was cities, right. And states that were also doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a long series of like vendors that had like license plates. So it goes on to list like the other cities in the Northeast, right. That were starting to make these plates. Mm-hmm. And this was interesting. So by the 1910s, cause we asked specifically if there was an Idaho plate and yeah. there was not one that he was aware of, but there was one, one city in Idaho. Which city? Um, so it was Haley, Idaho, which is very, still very, very small. Yeah. So the, dawn, the places. Yeah. The second decade of the 20th century saw more cities, counties, and states taking up the trend. So these issue, these states were Kentucky, Michigan, Maryland began the run of state issued plates. Mm. In Michigan and Kentucky, all varieties of plates were porcelain. While in Maryland, only the dealer plates were porcelain. So passenger car were not porcelain. Oh. And cities that jumped on this porcelain bandwagon. So in 1910, Haley, Idaho, Valley City, North Dakota, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Jacksonville, Florida, and Moundsville, West Virginia. But with the exception of Moundsville's plate, each of these cities pioneered their respective states' experimentation with porcelain plates. So this expectation in Moundsville, none of the states from which these plates were issued ever took up the task of issuing porcelain plates themselves. They left that up to individual cities. So that's why there was the one city in Idaho that had porcelain plates, but Idaho as a state didn't issue porcelain I bet finding a Haley, Idaho porcelain plate would be so hard because it, I mean... Like five people probably lived there at the time. Right. right. They're like, we're doing it. We're doing it. <laughs> yeah. So then we have, as it moves forward, right, we start to move away from porcelain plates as industry starts to grow. Mm-hmm. Metal becomes more available. We're moving away kind of from porcelain and things like that. Yeah. Easier to mass produce. Very. With metal versus the porcelain. And so by the 20s, it was the last ditch effort to get the West to adopt this type of plate so you had new mexico and washington that experimented with it but like wyoming four years earlier one year was enough for washington and the state was back to embossed metal new mexico however maintained the confidence in porcelain and they issued plates for four years i wonder if um the more rural states didn't adopt it specifically because they got messed up with cars driving on bumpy roads right in the terrain like it just would not have worked for there would have been this area better roads available in mm-hmm. New England because, you know, it's an older part of the country, yeah. more people. That is all making much more sense than initially. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because we see the rise and fall of porcelain over the course of basically 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. And all of the other states kind of drop it as something that they're doing and it fizzles out in the Northeast and a little bit of the South. So we have them kind of starting and ending in the same place of these Hmm. porcelain plates. And then they were starting to be like privately issued to motorists in Long Island, like using the parkway, the Long Island Parkway. Um, But it came to an end and the end of porcelain plates altogether was in the 40s. Oh, that's pretty late. Yeah. The only city issued porcelain license plates in use in the 1940s were produce dealer and wood and coal dealer plates from Sacramento milk permit plates from Bristol, Connecticut, and licensed trucking and hackney carriage plates from Providence, Rhode Island, none of which to appear to have continued past 1942. Wow. Yeah. New England had an uninterrupted 40-year run of porcelain license plates dating back to 1903, and then it came to an end. 
Beyond these few city issues, Delaware brought porcelain plates back as a state for the first time in 1915, and they issued them from 1942 through 47. It's interesting, like trying to bring it back. Yeah, what a weird thing to mm-hmm. try and bring back. Yeah. Um, surely we will find odd porcelains from the 40s here and there as time goes on, such as the toppers used by vehicles at the West Point Military Academy Oh, from the mid-30s until at least 1940. But by the end of World War II, the death uh, nail for porcelain license plates has been sounded. Hmm. After 40 years, porcelain became a thing of the past. Like I, every industry. I had never time. heard of porcelain license plates mm-hmm. before today. I had heard of porcelain signs. I just never connected the dots to yeah. it. No, not yeah. a boo. Yeah, it's very um, weird. It's cool. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, that it, how it only stayed so localized regionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, you think about the West at that time. There was not, there was a, not a way to facilitate that type of thing, really. Oh yeah, unless definitely not. somebody did it themselves. We lived too far apart from each other. Way too far apart, and there were too many bumpy roads. Yeah, and too many cows. Well, and people weren't having cars. They had people were ranchers and they had horses and things like that. That's what they were doing. Horse and buggy. Mm-hmm. They didn't give a shit. Also, they're not going to let anybody identify them. It's <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, but it's a shorter curio today yeah um we are off to work at the sherman home Mm -hmm. get that finished and ready to go but we wanted to get an episode out for y'all this week with a guest with sweet alex please be sure to go and find all of his uh things eagle's eye finds definitely website instagram if you're local please go to a pop-up where he is selling things he's a a really great dude Mm -hmm. definitely and keep up with all of our bullshit uh the mothball prophecies original on instagram and facebook and tiktok as well as Mothball Estate Sales, we had a lovely friend, Miss Erin Wright, create a playlist of all of the music from the Sherman House. And you can find the link for that on the Mothball Estate Sales. It's delightful. Yes. Go listen. Delightful. As always, I hope you find some good shit. And please remember to do your research. Specifically related to birds. Yeah. Okay. Tiny dinosaurs. Bye. Bye.